you have a Bible, turn with me to Psalm 85. Psalm 85, we looked at the first seven verses last week. And the focus of that portion was found in verse 6 with a prayer. And that's where I want to begin reading with verse 6, even though we're really covering verses 8 to 13 today. I'll begin with verse 6. Will you not revive us again, that your people may rejoice in you? Show us your mercy, O Lord, and grant us your salvation. I will hear what God the Lord will speak, for he will speak peace to his people and to his saints, but let them not turn back to folly. Surely his salvation is near to those who fear him that glory may dwell in our land. Mercy and truth have met together. Righteousness and peace have kissed each other. Truth shall spring out of the earth, and righteousness shall look down from heaven. Yes, the Lord will give what is good, and our land will yield its increase. Righteousness will go before him and shall make his footsteps our pathway. This is God's uh, written word, inspired, inerrant, infallible, authoritative, and it is powerful. Uh, May it work in our hearts. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the word of God. It is your word. And may we bow submissively and receive it uh, faithfully today in Jesus' name. Amen. Do you long for revival? You say, well, I've never experienced revival. I don't know what I'm longing for. I don't know what I'm asking for. And that's really, really true. If, if what I was saying last week is true, that in the United States it's been 100 years or so since we've experienced a true full-fledged revival. Now, there are pockets of personal revival and regional revival, I guess, but a, a true revival has not occurred in a long time, so we don't really know, perhaps, what that means. But do you pray for revival is another question I would ask you. I hope you've been praying for revival this week. The prophet Habakkuk prayed for revival, and in Habakkuk 3.2, he said, O Lord, revive your work in the midst of the years. That's a reminder that revival is... Uh, is God's work and not ours. Likewise, Asaph prayed in Psalm 80, Revive us and we will call upon your name. One of the uh, things that the biblical writers uh, from time to time lamented was the fact that no one was calling on God. There was none who seeks God. There's none who calls on your name. Revive us and we will. Call on your name. So revival is is a sovereign work of God. It's when God's people in great numbers, not just a smattering, not just a few mercy drops, but showers of blessing uh, would fall. uh, And people will turn from their sins, return unto the Lord with earnestness and seriousness under the powerful influence of the Holy Spirit. Last week, as I just read, again, Uh, In verse 6, we saw the prayer, Will you not revive us again? 
that your people may rejoice in you. So God has revived his people in the past. And he revives us in order that we would glorify him. Of course, he does everything for that reason. But specifically that your people may rejoice in you. And so when, even though we may not have experienced a, a, a worldwide or, or nationwide revival in, in our lives, yet we know that when it happens, the joy of the Lord will be prominent. The joy of the Lord becomes the strength of believers when they are revived. It's, a, it's to be a characteristic, a defining characteristic, a distinguishing characteristic of the Christian. Uh, Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones <clears throat> preached a whole series on revival. He preached uh, a, another whole series on what he called spiritual depression. And in one of the messages, well, the first message in that series on spiritual depression, he said this, that an that an unhappy Christian, uh, which he often also called a depressed Christian, an unhappy Christian was a contradiction in terms and a poor recommendation for the gospel. Well, if that's true, then we need to pray for revival because we want to be, uh, we want to be a, a recommendation for the gospel. We want to be those whom people would look at us and say, you know, why are you so happy? Why are you so full of joy um, when there's little joy, of course, in, in the world? We see that even more so today. People are not happy today. There, it seems like fewer people are happy. Well, the Christian ought to stand out as a joyful contrast. So allowing, of course, for differences in personality, your joy may be expressed um, you know, a with a little less exuberance than some. Uh, allowing for times of struggle. Every believer goes through times of sadness. Uh, Spurgeon, uh, whom I, who I quote a lot, uh, he, was, uh, he struggled with depression. Uh, but by the Lord's grace, if we are re revived, we're going to be full of joy. And we must remember that that is going to be one of the results. That's one of the things that God will do. He will produce Joy, do you want that in your life? Then pray for revival. And there are other results or responses from God to the prayer for revival, and that's really what the rest of this uh, psalm is about. So verses 8 to 13 describe some of the things that God will do uh, when he revives his people. So the psalmist prays, will you not revive us again? And in verse 8, then he, as, as it were, sits down to listen. He, he appeals to God and he says, Now I will hear what God the Lord will speak. You see, we speak to God in prayer. Uh, but God also wants to speak to us, and that means we need to listen. And just like in conversations we have with each other, it's a lot easier for us to talk than it is for us to really listen, isn't it? The same is true often in our conversation with God. And, and so if you and I want God to hear, to really listen and pay attention to what we're saying to him, what we are asking of him, then we need to be ready to listen to what he says in his word. It's very common for people to go to God and, and tell them, tell him, 
ask maybe is is uh, <laughs> it would be better, but sometimes it's tell uh, go to God, tell Him what they want Him to do for them. But it's far less common for people to go to God in His Word and to let Him tell them what He wants us to do for Him, isn't it? Right? We we we're we're all about God do this, God do that, and God says, well, okay, now listen to me. You do this, you do that. We don't want to hear that, but we need to hear we need to hear His Word, um, and we need to also pray, of course, uh, but. As we study the rest of this psalm, we need to listen to what God says. And the first thing he says to his people who are praying for revival is peace. Peace be with you. Those words came from the lips of Christ. Peace be with you. Uh, And they come from the psalmist. They come from God. And they come to his people. Verse 8, for he will speak peace to his people. And to his saints. Now his people and his saints are the same group of people described in, in different way, different ways. But God's people uh, are praying for revival. The ones who are praying for revival do so because, generally speaking, praying for revival comes about because people are troubled. Okay? Uh I think everybody in this room is troubled today about the state of our nation, the state of our country, our culture, our society. Uh, you're troubled probably about people that you are, are, are part of your family. You're troubled about some of them. You're troubled about your own soul. That's why we pray for revival. We're troubled by sin, and, and the, our own sin and sins of others. And by evil, uh, you know, God hasn't gotten rid of evil yet. It still exists because Jesus hasn't returned yet, and at which at which time He will put an end to all evil. So, um, to troubled souls who seek God earnestly and pray for revival, not just for themselves, but for the church as a whole, those who are thinking of others. Who need revival. To those people, God will speak peace. God will speak peace to his people. His people, those who are saved by grace. Those who have been saved because of the covenant of grace established through Jesus Christ. So God speaks peace by the gospel of peace for those who come and bow before the prince of peace. You see, peace doesn't come, um, it, peace comes at a great cost, at the cost of the death of the Son of God, but it comes to us freely as we receive Jesus Christ by faith. Now, his saints, that's also a term used in the New Testament that we're familiar with are his holy ones, his godly ones. And and that has to do with the fact that when we come to believe in the Lord Jesus, uh, God sets us apart for himself. He sets us apart unto uh, a holy life. To sanctify us is, is to set us apart and then begin that process of sanctification, conforming us into the image of Christ. 
The Bible says that there is no peace for the wicked. And you may remember before you were converted to Christ, uh, when you didn't know Jesus, when you couldn't sing, thank you, Lord, for saving my soul. You remember, likely, that you had no peace at that time. Uh, Peace, though, is for the believer. Peace is for the godly. Peace is for the ones who are being made holy. And thus the warning at the end of verse 8. But, all right, there's that word. Uh, sometimes it signifies good news. Sometimes it signifies um, something that maybe we need to hear that we aren't necessarily wanting to hear. Uh, God will speak peace. But, <laughs> there's that but. Don't let them not return back to folly. Uh, those, if you turn back to folly, you will lose your peace. You, you don't lose your salvation if you're a true, truly born-again believer, but you will lose your peace. You'll lose the assurance, perhaps, or have the assurance of your salvation diminished. We serve a jealous God. God does not tolerate sin in his people. Uh, and so we should not tolerate sin in our own lives. To pray for revival, you see, is to pray to, uh, to be restored to God, to be forgiven of our sins, to experience His joy and peace. These are wonderful things. So that to turn back to sin after going through these things, after praying for the opposite, is truly a foolish thing to do. You see, God is always speaking this way and reminding us in his word to the woman who was caught in adultery. In John 8, Jesus says, has no one condemned you? She said, no one, Lord. And Jesus said to her, neither do I condemn you. But, he didn't use the word but in the verse, but he says, go and sin no more. Don't return to the folly of the life that you were living. So we should pray for revival, pray that God will sustain that revival. And it's one thing to have a flash uh, that lasts for a few days or a few weeks. Uh, but we need for to pray for sustained revival in our lives and in the church so that we do not turn back. Turning back is something that God in, in His Word uh, is very, very um, much against. You know, he who puts his hand to the plow and turns back, Jesus said, is not worthy of me. So pray that we will, uh, God will sustain us so that we don't turn back but go forward, only forward in faith. Now, if that is your desire today, do you desire to be revived? Do you desire to be revived in holiness, in godliness, in obedience? If you do, then you will have God's peace. And he will speak peace to your soul. And that word in Hebrew, as you might know, is shalom. Shalom. He will speak shalom to you. You know, the Jews, even today, when they greet each other, uh, if you went to Israel, which I've never been, but I, I, I would guess that I know that they, they greet each other that way. And they also say goodbye. It's like hello and goodbye. It's shalom. Shalom. It's a wish uh, for wholeness, peace, harmony, 
completeness, prosperity, welfare, tranquility is a lot more than just peace as we think of it. Uh, and so it's a wish, but they don't have any power to make it happen. God, when he speaks, creates. And so God can speak peace to you and you will have it. Do you have his peace this morning? Do you desire that peace? Well, it comes only, the only way to have true shalom is through the true Messiah. And we need to pray for the Jews uh, to, to see that Christ is their Messiah as well as the Messiah of the world, the Savior of the world. Romans 5.1, therefore, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. So God speaks peace to those who are seeking revival. Secondly, from our passage, another thing that God is, speaks to his people is about salvation and glory. Verse 9, surely his salvation is near to those who fear him, that glory may dwell in our land. And God wanted them to know that salvation or deliverance, another term for salvation, uh, salvation is, doesn't always refer to salvation from sin, although that's the greatest form of it. It can mean deliverance from anything uh, that is uh, a danger to us. And he said that salvation is near to those who fear him. Now the Jews had returned to the land from their exile, but they were still facing great uh, uh, difficulties, obstacles. God had, quote, already saved them in the sense that he had delivered them from their exile. They had been set free from uh, bondage to uh those in Babylon and so forth. So uh, yet they still, when they came back into the land, they had many, many troubles. Likewise, God saves us from our sins and he sets us free. But we know, and the Bible also agrees, that our troubles do not thereby disappear. Sometimes they get worse after we get saved. Uh, but God is always near at hand to save us, to deliver us uh, from temptation and from our trials. And this agrees with what 1 Corinthians 10.13 says. I'm going to read from the a translation called the Bible in basic English because I think it, it it's very accurate. And it says, you have been put to no test, but such as is common to man. And God is true, who will not let any test come to you on which you are not able to undergo. But he will make with the test a way out of it so that you may be able to go through with it. Now, a test can be a temptation or it can be a trial. And that's the point. The word can be translated either way. So test, I think, uh, it, it kind of includes both. So when a test comes your way and, and you feel weak, you don't know if you can handle this or resist this temptation that comes. Know that God is near to help you, to deliver you. He will bring you through it. He will enable you to overcome it. Or He will enable you to escape it. Sometimes the best response to temptation is to flee. Sometimes it's to press on and be strong in the Lord and overcome it. Or simply to endure the trial, but remember that prayer in Psalm 12 that we learned, right? You haven't forgotten it, right? It's a pretty simple prayer. What is it? Help, Lord. 
help, Lord. God is ready to help. He's a very present help in trouble. Know that when you're in trouble, God is, is very present. Very present. He's very near, in other words. Uh, only we need to be careful, as verse 8 says, to fear him that glory may dwell in our land. Okay, so uh, verse 9, Surely his salvation is near to those who fear him, that glory may dwell in his land. So there's kind of, again, one of those parts that's thrown in there that shows our responsibility to what God will do. That The idea of glory dwelling in the land is the idea of God's presence being manifested to a people in the Old Covenant. The Jews, uh, in the, with the temple and the very presence of God, the glory of God dwelt. You remember when the temple was built and Solomon dedicated the temple and the glory cloud uh, filled the place so they couldn't do anything but simply be overwhelmed with awe at the presence of God. And yet, they sinned, they were uh, determined to worship idols, they wouldn't repent, and God brought prophets to them and told them, it's not going to go well, you're going to be carried off into exile, and of course, they were. And not, he only, not only sent them into exile, but he left. The, the building, so to speak. His presence left and his glory departed. Uh, and then Jerusalem was destroyed. The temple was destroyed. Uh, later in the book of Acts, uh, Stephen declared this as he prayed and he, as he preached that God does not dwell in temples made with hands. And, and technically speaking, he never did. But... Uh, there is this new covenant emphasis in Stephen's words. Um, and, and, of course, Solomon, he said virtually the same thing, even though God did come to dwell in a special way in that earthly temple. But now, as Paul explains in his epistles, uh, God's temple is now his church, the people in whom he dwells through the Spirit. So, first of all, God's glory dwells in the person of Jesus Christ. John said, the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld his glory. God's glory dwelt in Jesus. Secondly, his glory resides in the church of the Lord Jesus. Why? Because Jesus dwells in his church by the Holy Spirit. The Lord of glory dwells in us. Only, again, that caveat there that we must continue to fear and reverence the Lord. Uh, the presence of God should not breed um, a, a, a slackness or a casualness in our response. And uh, this was brought out in, in the Sunday school lesson today that when people are in the presence of God, uh, they fall down. They are overawed with the presence of a holy and great being uh, that... That in, in which they are. So this is, this is something that <clears throat> the glory of God, you see, the presence of God ought to inspire fear and reverence. And it's possible for a church to grieve the Holy Spirit by lack of reverence and awe 
as they gather for worship. And one of the, I think one of the biggest mistakes of the modern church has been to lose that, that reverence, that fear of God in worship. To make it so casual uh, that we're not coming into the presence of God. We're just coming into the presence of a, of a you know, just some old friend, some pal, you know. Uh, that's not the way we should approach our God. Uh, in addition, to fear the Lord means that we live our lives in the fear of God. So uh, we live our lives circumspectly and, and in obedience to the Lord. Psalm 84:11 says, "The Lord will give grace and glory. No good thing will He withhold from those who walk uprightly." So. Uh, the idea, if God's glory dwells in us, then we should fear him and walk uprightly. If we continue to live in the fear of God, he will continue to dwell in us. He will continue to deliver us in his glory abiding with us. And that is a wonderful thing. Thirdly, and last from the passage, another thing that God is speaking to us who are seeking revival is he's he reveals to us who he is by his attributes and by harmony of those attributes. When God revives us, he showers us with blessings. And here in, in verse 10, four of the attributes of God are mentioned that combine together to bring blessing to his people. So there's two pairs of attributes, and, and these pairs on the surface, appear uh, to be at odds with each other. But God, in Jesus Christ, makes them work together for our good, for our blessing. One uh, uh, old writer said this, that the attributes, these attributes, parted at the fall, but they met again at the birth of Jesus Christ. Um, and the first combination of attributes is mercy and truth. Mercy and truth have come together. Things that, uh, two things that don't often, uh, at least in our own minds, seem to fit together. John 1.14 describes Jesus as being full of both grace or mercy. It can be translated grace and truth. And the truth is, do you want to know the truth? As the old saying goes, you can't handle the truth. That's that's what the where most of us are. We can't handle the truth. But the truth is, we're not a bunch of really good people sitting here in church, and we're not good because we're here in church. We're not good at all. Uh, we are wretches in the sight of God. I mean, I can go on. You get the point. Uh, the truth is, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Uh, wages of sin is death. The soul that sins shall die. This is what we deserve. This is who we are. God has to be true uh, to his nature and to his justice. He has to punish sin. But then that's where mercy meets together, comes together with truth. God found a way to show mercy to sinners by allowing his son to die to take our punishment in our place. So in Jesus, both mercy and truth meet together. So in the end, it's all mercy for us. And then righteousness and peace have kissed. It's a similar concept. 
But the Bible tells us that in order to be accepted by God, we have to be perfectly righteous. And that's the only kind of righteousness God can accept. We think, we tend to think, people tend to think, that God grades on a curve. And then if you just try harder, if you're a little better than most people, you know, that you're maybe at least a C plus in righteousness, uh, that God will accept that and, 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 and that that's okay. No, it's not okay. He doesn't accept anything below an A plus, below 100%. Perfection. Well, if we can't, and you and I are, are aware of this fact, that we can't achieve perfection, even after we get saved, we can't achieve perfection. So before we're saved, we know that we are not perfect. And if we can't achieve perfection, we can't have peace with God unless, unless righteousness and peace embrace and kiss each other. And so the good news is that God became man in the person of Jesus Christ. He lived a perfect life. He earned a perfect righteousness. He died and paid the, the full debt of our sin on the cross. And so he satisfied God's justice. So here's the thing. His perfect obedience, his perfect righteousness, as well as his satisfaction for sin as he died, um, are have come together for us to give us these things as a free gift. And so when we believe on Jesus Christ, our sins are are pardoned, are forgiven, and we are accepted as if we were 100% righteous because Christ's 100% perfect righteousness is imputed and credited to us. We are declared righteous by grace alone through faith in Christ alone alone. Now the Westminster Confession of Faith in chapter 11 verse 3 it's a chapter on justification it says that this forgiveness of sins and the and the, the imputation of righteousness and that's what justification is it's all this is so that both the exact justice and the rich grace of God might be glorified in the justification of sinners. See, God justifies us by faith so that he can be glorified in his attributes, righteousness and peace, justice and grace, all of these things, mercy and truth. God becomes exalted in the way that he saves us. And the way that he justifies us. Romans 3.26 puts it this way. That Christ died for our sins on the cross to demonstrate at the present time his righteousness. That he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. So he's just. He does not set aside his justice when he saves us. He's just and the justifier of the one who has faith And and Romans 5 says he justifies the ungodly. And the only way he can do that is because of Christ, his perfect righteousness, and his glorious death. So righteousness and peace kissed at the cross of our Redeemer. And when we believe that, we are justified by faith. And one of the interesting things is that in the history of revivals from the Reformation, let's just start at the Reformation, Protestant Reformation, forward 
in the history of revivals in, in the Western world and probably other places, one of the most prominent doctrines that is preached uh, during those times is the doctrine of justification by faith alone. That becomes prominent. People begin to see that we're saved by, by the free act and free provision that God has made in Jesus Christ. Another doctrine that's prominent in times of revival is the doctrine of the new birth, which we're, we're not really talking about today, but, but justification, the doctrine of the new birth. These are things that become prominent in times of revival. The, the bottom line in this passage is that all the attributes of God work together for the salvation of sinners in and through Jesus Christ. Did you know that apart from Jesus Christ, all the attributes of God would work against you? They would, first of all, there would be no mercy to you. There would only be justice. Uh, his truth would declare us guilty. His righteousness would condemn us. But Jesus himself has become the mercy promise in Luke 172. He is the truth itself, as he said in, in John 14:6, I am the truth. As Jeremiah the prophet said in Jeremiah 23:6, he is the Lord our righteousness. And then in Isaiah 9:6, he's the Prince of Peace. Ephesians 2:17 says he is our peace. So in Jesus, all the attributes of God work for us. Verse 11 is an interesting picture of truth springing out of the earth and righteousness looking down from heaven. We might think of Jesus' parable of the soils and the sower. Uh, the soil is, is, is the human heart, and it may be good soil. It might be bad soil. It might be soil that gets, you know, the seed is the word of God. The gospel is planted. And so uh, truth will spring out of the, uh, out of the heart uh, of man as God looks down with favor uh, upon us. And, and in order for truth to continue to spring up from our hearts and bear fruit in our lives, we need, of course, to continue to have that input of the truth of Scripture in our hearts and in our minds. We need to keep our eyes fixed on the object of that truth. The, the, the very focal point of the Bible is Jesus Christ. And Jesus put it this way in John 15, If you abide in me and my words abide in you, You'll ask what you desire, and it will be done for you. By this is my Father glorified, and you'll bear much fruit, and you'll be my disciples. Well, um, these things, these four attributes in particular, really are the recipe for a happy life. Okay, A peaceful, happy life. Even in the midst of a horrible, terrible world. Uh, John Calvin described the world... At the time, he, he said, you know, that we see cruelty raging, truth is extinguished, righteousness oppressed and trampled underfoot, all things are embroiled in confusion. He says, were it not better that the world should be brought to an end, that such a state of things should continue? And you would think he was talking about our day, but he was talking about the, old, the good old days. <laughs> uh, they weren't good old days, really. Uh, they were tough times, just like today. So you and I, though, can experience the joy and peace even though the world gets worse and worse. As we look to the Lord in verse 12, it says, Yes, the Lord will give what is good, and our land will yield its increase. 
These are some more of the blessings that come from true revival. And that's why we need to keep praying. Will you not revive us again? Now, revival in the New Covenant concerns mainly the church of Jesus Christ. But revival spills over into whatever nation the church is in. And if that church experiences revival in that nation, uh, the blessings will flow over uh, into uh, the world around us, and people will get saved, which is the greatest blessing. Uh, and think about it. First of all, again, we go back to the first half of this psalm, where the psalmist gives thanks for the blessings that God has had given them in the past. We need to thank God for the blessings we have in our nation. And the fact that you and I have heard the gospel as we grew up in this country. What a blessing. Uh, not a perfect country, but... We've had the gospel. We have had the good news. Uh, I don't know what God has in store for America, but I know what he has in store for the church. Okay? Righteousness will go before him. He will make his footsteps our pathway. The Lord is going to lead us, uh, and he may revive us, but he's going to lead us uh, to follow him. And to be faithful to him, enable us to be faithful to him, no matter how bad things get around us. And so we need to follow Jesus. We need to keep our eyes on him, the righteous one. He's our righteousness. He shows us the righteous way, the path in which we should go. And he tells us that it's a narrow path. The broad road that leads to destruction is where multitudes go. Those, that's the woke world. That's the perverse world. Uh, that's the world that we see all around us. We're going to stay on the narrow road. And yes, um, the people on the broad road are going to laugh at us. They're going to despise us. But that's where the, the blessings are. That's where the joy and the peace are. So revival, yes, is des- desperately needed today. Will you not revive us again, O oh Lord? But that's only a taste. Even if we do experience revival in our lifetime, which I pray that we do, it's only a foretaste of eternal life and glory. One day, not only truth and mercy, righteousness and peace, but heaven and earth itself will be joined together, never to be separated again. Are you looking to Jesus? Are you following in his steps? Are you praying for revival? Let's pray. Lord, we thank you.